welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This sermon is taken from the 2012 Annual Missions Conference. This is the evening service of Monday the 28th of May 2012. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. Well, the scripture says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I don't know about you, but I enjoyed the music this evening, enjoyed singing together, enjoyed listening to Nathan sing. And if you have not figured out already from Nathan's comments earlier, we spent a good portion of the day in Oxford, England. I'd never been there. All the times, Brother Carl, that we've been in this country, never had the privilege to go to Oxford, but we had the privilege to go there today. And I didn't realize Oxford University is actually 38 individual colleges, each college uh, accommodating about 600 to 650 students. And uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, and I'll use the terms that our tour guide Chris gave us today, this is not 100% correct, but it's about 80% accurate. Uh, the word university kind of is an umbrella to cover those six, uh, those 38 uh, different individual colleges. There's more to it than that, of course. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. But it's kind of the word, the term university covers those 38 different colleges, and it was insightful. I'll tell you what uh, moved me more than anything else that we saw today, Brother Peiser, was this, was the stand right there where we begin our tour. Look at that cross on the ground that marked the spot where uh, Nicholas Latimer, excuse me, Nicholas Rigby, uh, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cranmer all gave their lives burned at the stake because they would not recant of their faith. If you know anything about the story there, and I'm not going to go into all the details, you can go online and read about it or pick up a book and read about it. But uh, those uh, three gentlemen, each respectively, gave their lives there, burned at the stake. And the first two to give their life there was Mr. Latimer and Mr. Ridley. And as uh, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley were being burned to the stake side by side, it is said that Latimer looked over at Ridley and said, Take heart, Mr. Ridley. Play the man. I trust we will start a fire today in England that shall never be put out. And you know what? I believe they did start a fire in England that was never put out. And that was in 1555 when those two gentlemen gave their lives. One year later, Thomas Cranmer, of course, gave his life at the same exact location. If you've never been there, by the way, how many of you have ever been there and seen what I'm talking about? If you've never been, you need to go. Uh, I I was stirred. In fact, I haven't uh, actually gotten over it yet today. In fact, I sat down uh, in the limited amount of time we had, very limited amount of time we had between the time we got home and the time we had to come over here, sat down and started typing an email to all of my email lists, some 2,000 people, most of them in the United States, others of them that are around the world, uh, giving them a little bit of the history of that entire scenario and telling them how stirred I was by what I saw today. Do you understand your country is rich, rich in history? And I love this country for that reason and a lot of other reasons. But uh, so much, so much of what we enjoy in my country is a result of what God graciously did in this nation. And my brother, who has been a teacher of history, government, and economics for over 30 years, has repeatedly shared with me, and I told my wife over and over today, I said, my brother will be eating his heart out, wishing he were where I was today. Whenever I uh, uh, sent him an email tonight and said, Dan, I stood right at that spot where you've told me so many times about what happened with Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer. And uh, he's going to be hating life because I was there. But uh, anyway, he shared with me many times what happened specifically with Latimer and uh, Ridley and Cranmer, specifically uh, Thomas Cranmer. What happened there, a scenario that basically was a political event playing out, uh, forever shaped the course of the United States of America. And again, I'm not going to go into all the reasons of why I'm saying that, But had not Cranmer done what he did, had not those other two men a year before Cranmer gave his life, had they not done what they did, and there was a lot of other information, a lot of other things that took place there, but had that scenario not unfolded as it did, the United States of America may well have been a Catholic country, which would have meant we would have not had the liberty and freedoms that we have in the United States of America. There's a lot I would have to go into to explain that to you. But I'm just telling you that is the case. And my brother reminds me of it on a lot of occasions. So today was a banner day for me. And so Brother Larry, thank you. Thank you so much for being our gracious guide and getting us over there. And uh, we enjoyed it immensely. And if you have not already discerned, I love history. I absolutely do. I love every part about it. When I was growing up as a boy, Brother Carl, I just wanted to make history. That's all I wanted to do. Study it. I wasn't interested in. Well, now I'm not so much interested in making history, but I am very much interested in studying it because someone said it and said it well. If we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat the negative aspects of our history. There is more than a lot of truth to that, and I'm seeing that lived out almost on a daily basis in my country, which is in 
desperate disarray, terrible disarray right now. And we're praying that God will have mercy on us one last time. Send us a revival. May I say this? I believe it with all my heart. The only thing that will spare the United States of America, uh, the pit of God's undiluted judgment is a revival from the very throne room of God. The solution to our problems, by the way, the solution to your nation's problems, and I don't know much about those because I don't live here, but I know the world's in trouble right now. Solution to the nations of the world's problems are not political solutions. They're divine solutions. Only God has the answer to the ills that plague my country, your country, and the rest of the countries of the world. And so I am praying like never before that God would awaken us, God will awaken you, and that the Lord will one last time be pleased to send a revival that would shake uh, my country, your country, the West, even the world. You say, well, Brother Dave, do you believe God can really do that? If I didn't believe God could do that, I'd be doing something else right now, to be honest with you. I believe He can do it. Will He do it? I don't have the answer to that. I'm certainly praying that He will. And someone said to me not long ago, they said, well, you know, America's on their way down. You know, America's like a ship sinking. I said, well, you know, that is true. America is like a ship sinking. But here's what I believe is worthwhile endeavor. I believe we ought to bail water as fast as we can, as long as we can, keep the ship up as long as we possibly can. Who knows how many more God will save and what God will do. And so I hold out great hope. I really do. I'm the eternal optimist, but it's more than that. I hold out great hope that in the midst of great, great turmoil that God would be pleased to do something for His glory and uh, if the Lord would in any small way allow us to be a part of that, that'd be wonderful. Hope you will continue praying for the crusade in Kenya. There's a lot of things that will take place between tonight and uh, when the crusade begins on Monday. And so we need your prayers for protection, for God's power on the preached word, and for prosperity of the gospel. The three things I mentioned to you yesterday in Sunday school, that well beyond the event itself, the crusade event itself, that the Lord will continue to bring forth great fruit in the days and weeks. And if we have it, months and perhaps years that are before us, that God will work in a great way on the African continent. Acts chapter number 17, if you would please. Acts chapter number 17. I want you to direct your attention and your eyes to verse number 16 of that chapter. You follow along with your eyes as I read out loud. Acts 17 verse 16 where the scripture says this. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, and by the way, I'll pause long enough to say this, the them was Silas and Timothy. They were two other men that made up Paul's evangelistic team at that time. So Acts 17, 16 says, Now while Paul waited for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city, that is the ancient city of Athens, Greece, wholly given to idolatry. Now what that means is this. Paul had gone ahead of Silas and Timothy, and evidently his intent was to just... If I can use the term we use in America today, hang out in Athens, just sort of wait for them to arrive in Athens, Greece. But while he's waiting for them to arrive and join him, the Bible says his spirit is stirred in him when he sees a city wholly given. The two words wholly given literally mean covered up with idol worship. By the way, may I say this? As we have traversed through your beautiful city of Birmingham, England, as we went through Oxford today, didn't see as much of it in Oxford at all, but as we've gone through the city of Birmingham over the last three days, I have become more and more amazed at what I'm seeing happen to your country. By the way, it's happening to our country. There is an onslaught of Islam that has come to this nation. Are you aware of what I'm talking about? I know you are. Can you say an amen if you're aware of what I'm talking about? There, there is false religion everywhere, and it's not just Islam. There's other false religion. Idol worship is rampant in the world. It's rampant in my country. Well, it was certainly rampant in the ancient city of Athens, Greece. And when Paul saw it, he was so stirred by that, he couldn't just bide his time. He couldn't just wait till his partners in ministry joined him. He had to do something about what he saw. Well, what did he do? That's recorded for us in verse number 17. The Bible says this, Therefore, that is as a result of what he saw, a city wholly given to idolatry, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market, literally the marketplace daily with them that met with him. Now, folk, look at me. Let me explain something to you. Do you understand in Paul's day, they didn't have churches like we have today. The place where most of the religious instruction to the Jews, where most of it took place, was in a thing called the synagogue. It was in some ways, Brother Larry, like the church in that it was a place designed for the reading of the Scripture, the commenting on the Scripture, teaching of the Scripture. And so it was a place set aside for that. If I could word it this way, Paul went into the religious area of his day, the synagogue, and he communicated there, but he didn't stop there. He ventured, like sometimes you folks do, into the city center. 
of Athens, Greece, and he went into the market or the marketplaces where huge numbers of people would congregate, and there he tries to share the gospel as well. It is in the marketplace that he encounters a problem. Folk, may I say this? Most of the time, if we're going to carry the gospel to the regions beyond, we're not going to encounter a problem inside a building like this, though there can be problems that come up where people become selfish and self-absorbed uh, uh, and orientated about, brother, what they want and their agenda, you know, and some of the things we talked about yesterday. But for the most part, the problems we're going to encounter when it comes to the gospel are outside the walls of this building. I want you to see what kind of problems Paul encountered. Look at verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? What will this babbler say? Other some, in other words, other people said, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now look up, let me explain something to you. Two groups of people encounter Paul. The first group is called the Epicureans. The other group is called the Stoics. The Epicureans and Stoics were about as different, a diverse group of people, groups of people, as there could possibly be. The Epicureans basically lived by this code. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. In other words, my body was designed for the enjoyment of pleasure. That's what the Epicureans believed. So anything I can possibly find, anything I can possibly participate in that will bring more pleasure, more enjoyment to my physical body, engage in that activity. That was basically the philosophy of the Epicureans. Because of that philosophy, much like today, there were all kinds of ramifications, moral ramifications of living that lifestyle. However, what they said basically is if it feels good, do it. The Stoics, on the other hand, were quite different than the Epicureans. They believed in living a very self-controlled life. Keep your body in check. Do not give free reign to the passions of your flesh. So you've got one group over here that are just doing anything that feels good. You've got another group over here that's saying, no, control yourself. Keep your body in check. May I say, both of these people, both of these groups do not know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, just keeping yourself under self-control is not going to be enough. Both of them encounter him, and the Bible says, look again at verse 18, they said to him, what will this babbler say? Can I let you in a little secret? When they call Paul a babbler, they're not commenting in a positive way about him. They're not complimenting him. The word babbler literally is a phrase in the Greek language that means this. Here's the idea of a seed picker. A seed picker. It means this. They are highly intelligent men, the Epicureans and Stoics. In fact, in Athens, Greece, they were so proud of their intellect. Paul comes into town by his own testimony, brother. He was not a gifted communicator. He was a highly intelligent man, but they don't get that from his communication. So they call him a babbler or a seed picker. You say, preacher, again, I'm not following you. What they're saying is this. Paul, you don't possess the great intellect we have. You're a seed picker. You've gone around like a bird would pick up seeds off the ground and you've picked up a few fragments of knowledge here and there, but you don't possess the great intellect that we possess. Every time, brother, I read that, I want to LOL. As people text, you know, around the world, laugh out loud. I want to laugh out loud because they don't know who they've got a hold of here, do they? They don't understand that Paul is himself a highly intelligent man, but he's coming to town not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He's coming to town empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. What will this babbler say? Others said, man, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods. Who is this deity he's talking about named Jesus? And he rose from the dead. Would you have ever imagined that in your country, what I've ever imagined in my country, that if you mention Jesus dying on an old rugged cross, being buried, rising again the third day, and you tell that to people, people would scratch their head and think, what, what are you talking about? Man, that's a strange God. Never heard of him. I would have never imagined, Brother Larry, that I'd ever hear that. But you know what? My country is becoming increasingly secular and godless. By the way, first time I was at this church... Before this building was ever renovated, the first time I was here along with your pastor, Brother St. Paul, I remember a group of young people coming and sitting on those benches that went up on this side. How many of you remember some of that? Miss Rivka, I remember you and I sat there and we talked and prayed several times uh, that first or second or third trip. And there were benches that went up right there and right there. And I remember there were some young men that came in with a liter and a half Coca-Cola. And during the service, while I was preaching... While your pastor was preaching, they were passing the Coke back and forth and, and drinking the Coke. 
Now, I will say this. They were sitting like this, and they had their hand on their elbow, and they were paying every attention to everything that was being said. But they'd drink a little bit of the Coke. They'd hand it to his buddy. He'd, he'd wipe it off. You know, he'd put it in his mouth, drink a little bit. Preacher, the only thing they didn't have that would have made the experience complete was a bag of popcorn, and everything would have been great. I mean, they're passing a Coke around. I remember at the end of one of the messages, the dad who used to attend here, he said, as a little boy, took the boys out. And I remember walking out and talking to them out on the front step. I remember looking at those two young men, two of them, and I said this, do you guys ever, ever heard of about a person named Jesus who died on an old rugged cross for you? And I remember one of those little guys looking at me, and honestly, Brother Larry, if he was telling the truth, he said, who's that? Now, I don't know if they still live where they lived then. Well, that was about 1990. But you know, in 1990, I could have picked up a rock, and if I could have thrown it hard enough from the front steps of the church, I could have hit their house with that rock. Those two boys didn't know who Jesus was. Oh, Dave, not in England. This guy, Paul, seems to be a setter forth of strange gods. Who is this Jesus he's talking about? Well, Paul continues to preach that message to them. I want you to drop down with your eyes, if you would, please, to verse number 22 of Acts 17. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. By the way, Mars Hill was the very zenith of the hill of Ares, it was called. The, the, the place where a lot of political activity and other activity took place in ancient Greece. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Now, superstitious does not mean that they were, you know, superstitious, you know, walking around, you know, fearful. It means I perceive men that in all things you are very religious. In other words, when I came into your town, I noticed something about you. You are a religious lot of people. Well, why would he say that? Look what else he goes on and says. For as I passed by, in other words, as I came into your town and beheld your devotions, your altars, your statues, your shrines. As I came into town and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now look up at me for a minute. Do you understand when Paul went into ancient Athens and he walked into the middle of town, there were temples, there were shrines, there were statues everywhere built to a multiplicity of false and pagan deities. When Paul's walking through there, he sees a temple to this God here, a temple to that deity over there, a temple over here or a shrine to another deity. And as he walks into town, preacher, when he gets to the end of the road, they've got one last temple and on it, it says this, to the unknown God. You see, the men of Athens were so religious, they didn't want to offend any of the pagan deities of their day. So in order not to offend any of the deities, they had a catch-all temple, one at the very end of the road. Hey, in case we've accidentally overlooked one of the deities, and man, we don't want to do that. We don't want the gods angry at us. We'll build a catch-all temple, and we'll just put on it to the unknown God, to the deity we might have accidentally overlooked, and we didn't mean to do that. Paul said, when I saw that temple, that one really arrested my attention. Look at the end of the verse, if you would, please. Verse 23. Whom therefore you ignorantly worship. To the gods you've built a temple to, but you don't even know who he is. Him declare I unto you. You know what that means? Can I tell you about the gods you've built an altar for, but you don't even know who he is? And with that introduction, he begins telling them about Jesus. He tells them thoroughly about Jesus. And if you look at verse 30 of Acts 17, the Bible says this, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because He, holy God, hath appointed a day in the which He, holy God, will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained. Whereof He, holy God, hath given assurance unto all men in that He raised him from the dead. Now, I want to focus in on verse 30 tonight, and I want to talk to you from my heart about the necessity of now. The necessity of now. Friends, look up at me for just a moment. In verse 30, Paul says, God has commanded now all men everywhere to repent. 
Brother Larry, it seems like with increasing frequency, what we're doing in my country, what's happening in this country is this. Somehow, someway, we think this message of Jesus and his love, this message of the gospel, is something that somehow, someway, you know, we can delay getting it to people. In fact, I talk to folks all the time, and here's their mindset if they're teenagers. You know, I'm a young person, and I'll be honest, I thought this way when I was a teenager. You know, I'm 16 years old, I'm 17 years of age, and one of these days, I'm going to get serious about really yielding my life to the Lord and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to get serious when I grow into adulthood. May I say this? The facts are these. You and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So if we think serving the Lord and presenting the gospel is something that we're going to do later, we're sadly mistaken. Every one of those people that boarded those airliners on 9-11-2001, every one of them thought that plane was going to land. They were going to have a meal. They were going to get ready for bed. They were going to sleep a good night's sleep and the next morning start the whole routine all over again. They all thought that. Not a one of them thought, I'm going to die today. And yet in my country, almost 3,000 people tragically, tragically died in one day. Not a one of them thought that was going to happen. By the way, I don't think a person of us in here this morning got up. I know I didn't. I was excited about going to Oxford. I didn't get up. And I did not Shelley think this. You know, I might be in eternity by tonight. I didn't think that. But folks, the fact is this. I don't really know. I feel fine. I feel great, to be honest with you. I feel like I'm going to be along to torment you, Brother Larry, for a long time. I mean, I really do. I feel, I feel healthy. I'm trying to take vitamins and eat right and all that, except, you know, for the fish and chips. But, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to eat as right as I can. I feel good. But the fact is this, folks. I don't know. There could be lurking inside of me right now a disease, a germ. Do you understand before tomorrow night, I could myself be in eternity. So if I'm thinking, you know, next week the crusade in Kenya is when I'm really going to preach with a passion and try to get people to come to Christ. If I think that, I'm thinking mistakenly. Because, folk, the fact is this, I don't know. So now's the time for us to get serious about sharing the gospel by the way, Brother Pizer, I have never found a place anywhere in the Scripture that encourages putting off, delaying, sharing the message of Jesus on the part of the person listening to that message. I don't find anything in the Scripture that encourages them to delay or put off responding to that message. No, I find in the Bible over and over and over, the Bible puts a premium on now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. If you're hearing God's voice, don't you harden your heart. Don't you push Him away. You come to Him now. There's an urgency, a necessity to now. And I want to encourage you, my dear friends, at Bethel Free Baptist Church, Birmingham, England, if you're ever going to get serious about mission work, both here and supporting mission work abroad, the time to do that is right now. Brother Dave, why? Three reasons. I want you to look again at your Bible. I want to show you what Paul says to the men of Athens, why now is so important. Now, let your eyes rest, if you would, please. Verse number 24. After saying, as I came into your town, beheld all your statues, shrines, all of your temples, Paul goes on and says this in verse 24, God that made the world, that is the true and living God, the one that you've kind of accidentally built a temple to and you don't even know what his name is. I'm telling you about him, God, the true and living God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Let me ask a question. How many of you know who Dale Carnegie was? Anybody ever heard the name Dale Carnegie? By the way, Brother Pizer, he wrote a book talking about uh, you know, how to effectively deal with people. He had a course he taught on the effective dealing with people. Can I say this? The Apostle Paul had never evidently read that book, and I'll tell you why. Obviously he hadn't, because if he had, he wouldn't have done what he just did in verse number 24. He says, God that made the world and everything in it, seeing he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. I want you to think about this. He has walked into a town with temples made by human hands everywhere. See, he had never taken a Dale Carnegie course on how to win friends and influence people. He had never done that. Because he hits them, not in an unkind way, but in a direct way, right where they live. Look, there's temples, shrines built to all the multiplicity of false gods. Listen, men of Athens, the true and living God is too big to fit in a puny human temple. He made the world and everything in it. And he won't fit into one of your puny temples. 
Look at what he says in verse 25. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands. See, the men of Athens were so proud of what they had done for the gods. We built a temple for this god. He must be proud of us. They were proud of the fact that their deity was proud of them. Well, Paul says, look, the true and living God not only will not fit into one of your puny human buildings, he's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Look at the rest of verse 25. Seeing he, the true God, giveth to all life and breath and all things. You see, Brother Kistler, why is now so important? I hope you'll write this down. Now is important when it comes to sharing the gospel because of the complete dependence of man. The complete dependence of man. You say, Brother Dave, I'm not following you. What Paul is saying is this. The true and living God that made the world and everything in it doesn't need you, men of Athens, to do something for him. He is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. You're so proud you've built a temple for all the gods. The true and living God does not need you to build a temple for him. He is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing, follow Paul's reasoning, he, the true and living God, giveth to all three things, life, breath, and everything else. In other words, Paul is saying this, God, the true and living God, doesn't need you to do a single thing for him. But you know what, men of Athens, you need him to do something for you. You need him for your next breath. He gives to all life and breath. God doesn't need you to do a thing for him. But you are completely dependent upon him for your next breath. Now, folks, may I say this? I've spent a lot of time in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Brother Larry, I have met people at the Pentagon that have three and four stars on their shoulder. I'm talking about high-profile, highly important people. Do you know the more you climb the, the, the ladder, so to speak, of success in the military or economically or whatever, politically, do you know what? Men who do not know Jesus tend to get arrogant, don't they? Oh, by my own self. I accomplished this. Man, I don't need anybody to do anything for me. You know what? The men of Athens were highly arrogant. Paul said, let me tell you something. The true and living God holds your breath in his hand. Oh, may I put it this way? I don't care how many miles a day we run. I don't care how many vitamins we take. I don't care how much weight we push. Do you know if holy God decides we're not taking another breath? We're not taking another breath. Because he holds our breath. In his hand. Men of Athens, you need to come to the true and living God who had a son named Jesus, and you need to come to him now because you're completely dependent upon him for everything. So, why is now so important? Because men are completely dependent. If the statistics are true, tell us that on average, globally, every of the clock, Every time I snap my finger, every second, at least on average, four people die. Four. Let's be conservative. Let's say that just two people die globally. Do you know that during the first minutes that we were in this building, singing songs together, listening to the family provide special music, do you know the half hour that we enjoyed that? If people die a second, do you understand that while we were listening to that, 3,600 people died? of them didn't know Jesus. I don't know what that does to you. That does something to me. People hear the message of the gospel and they need to hear it now. Why is now so important? Number one, because of the ignorance of man. Look at verse number 30 again. If, the times of this ignorance, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The microphone or the PA systems ticking noise, just disregard it if you worry about it. If I need to turn it off, Brother I can do so because uh, my voice is strong enough. I don't even need the, the microphone necessarily. But uh, anyway, don't worry about that. Don't let the devil distract you. Look again at verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I want you to pay attention to what Paul's saying. The times of this ignorance God has winked at. What is he saying when he calls this the times of this ignorance? You know what he's doing? He's basically calling the men of Athens idol worship an ignorant thing. 
It's an ignorant thing. You say, preacher, why, why, why would he do that? God has, notice the word, winked at. What does that mean? It means God has done this. He has winked at it. Now let me illustrate what this means. If you had children growing up and you ate out at a restaurant when your children were young, how many of you did that? Remember, uh, we were... Um, we were at the, the, the pastor's house, very, very dignified gentleman, and Rachel put a whole meatball or at least some significant portion of a meatball in her mouth, and she couldn't get it down. She got choked. And when she got choked, she coughed real hard, Brother Larry, and she, no kidding, shot the meatball out of her mouth across the table. It hit the table, bounced one time, and rolled up into this dignified pastor's plate right beside his meatballs. Now, what was so funny is I know he saw that. He had to. My wife was about to go nuts laughing. She was biting her lip to keep from laughing. I'm looking across the table going, don't, don't lose it, because if you do, we'll all lose it. The pastor just very meticulously cut his meatballs, ignored the one that Rachel had spit into his plate, and ate his own stuff. I mean, it was hilarious. We have been out at restaurants, and my wife will do this. She's done it numbers of times when the kids were growing up. I'd be sitting talking to the pastor like I talked to you, Brother Larry, and my wife would underneath the table take her foot and she'd nudge me. And I'd look at her and with her eyes and her head, she would do this. She'd go. Now what she's doing is she's gesturing at our children that are down here at the table with the pastor's children. And what she's trying to say is this, deal with your kids. Now I've never figured out why, you know, when they're up there playing and singing... You know, they're her kids, but when they're acting up with Larry, they're my kids. But anyway, deal with your children. Here's what I've done. I've looked down there at the end of the table, and as long as they're not setting the restaurant on fire or taking their fork and shooting peas at each other, you know, as long as they're not making a big mess, what I have often done is this. Down through the years, Brother Larry, I would look at my wife, and I would just do this. I would go, um... now the winking and the shaking of my head means this, not right now. Now, when we get home, there's going to be bloodshed in the woodshed. I mean, there is. We're going to deal with it when we get home, but not right now. That's what the wink means. I want you to follow what Paul's saying. The times of this ignorance, all your idol worship, God has winked at it. What does that mean? It means this. Paul is saying, do you understand the true and living God could have wiped you out for your idol worship and been totally just to do it? In fact, his righteousness screams, judge them. But you know what his mercy says? Not yet. Not yet. The times of this ignorance, God has said not yet. Now he could have wiped you out. But he's patient. Why? Because he wants men to have a chance to be saved. But now, now, he commands all men everywhere to repent. Now I want you to follow what Paul's doing. Why is now so important? Why do we need to get the gospel to people now? Number one, because of the complete dependence of man. Number two, because of the command of God. God commands people now. To repent. In other words, it's Paul's way of saying this. God's patience is drawing to a close. His patience is coming to an end. Now, he's not judged you yet. He could have, but he hasn't. He's been very patient, but his patience is coming to an end. And he's saying, now's the time to repent. Would you watch me for a second? I'm going to say the word, brother, you know Greek better than I do. Metanaeo. Is that close? It, 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 knuckles right there. Okay, good. All right. Praise the Lord. All right. That was good. Meta again. Not eo to think. Meta not eo is the word we get our English word repent from. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Meta not eo. To think again. To rethink, if you will. Men of Athens, you've been going this direction. You've had no time for God, much like the population of Birmingham, England, and much like the population of my country, America. We have no time for God. We're doing our thing, our way. But Paul is saying this, look, God's patience and putting up with that is about to come to an end, and it's time for all men everywhere to think again, 
to rethink their course in life. Don't you understand, men of Athens? This way, your way is a dead-end street. And it's time for you to rethink where you're headed. By the way, every time someone comes to Christ, that's exactly what happens. They're headed this way, away from God. But they hear a message where someone says, you know what, you're going to face judgment one day if you don't come to Jesus. God loves you. He sent His only Son to die for you. And you know what? They stop in their tracks and they rethink. And think, you know what, if I do go that way, I'm going to end up in hell forever. I don't want that. I don't want my sin to continue being an offense to holy God and result in my judgment in the lake of fire. So they rethink their course. And their rethinking causes them to turn from that way to Jesus and they invite Him into their heart and life. And they're born again. Why is now so important? Not only because of the complete dependence of man, but number two, because of the command of God. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Watch verse 31. He goes on and says this, Because He, holy God, hath appointed a day in the which He, holy God, will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained. Who is the one that holy God's ordained to be the agent of judgment on mankind? Hang on. By that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He, holy God, hath given assurance unto all men. And by the way, the assurance here is an assurance of judgment. He's given assurance of judgment unto all men in that He, Holy God, raised Him from the dead. Who did Holy God raise from the dead? What was His name? Jesus, His only Son. Now, do you know what Paul is saying here? The assurance that all lost humanity is going to one day be judged, the assurance of that is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. See, if He were not alive... If there weren't a life after this life, then we could say, you know what, I'll never face judgment. Paul said, oh, no, 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 no. The holy God I'm telling you about that you've never met. Oh, you've tried to build an altar to him, but you don't even know who he is. He's going to judge you one day, and here's the assurance of it. He raised his own son from the dead. That was an act of incredible mercy. But if you reject Jesus then you're going to face God's judgment just as sure as Jesus rose from the dead. Wow. Why is now so important? Because of the complete dependence of man, the command of God, number three, because of the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment. Folks, listen, you live next door to neighbors that if they die tonight and they've never heard about Jesus, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm not. I'm just saying it because it's the truth. If you've never told them, and they die tonight and they go to a Christless eternity, you know they're going to face God's undiluted judgment. I wonder what we're doing about that. I wonder what we're trying to say to that coworker. Oh, preacher, you know, I've I got to be careful what I say at work. Understood. But you know, surely there's a break time when you can say something. Why is that so important, Brother Dave? Why should I speak up? Why should I be concerned about a lost world? Because of the certainty of their judgment one day. They will face it. Now I want you to watch. When Paul preaches that message, watch verse 32. He gets three responses. By the way, the same response I get every time I preach, Brother Larry, same response you get every time you share the gospel. Brother Pizer, same response you get every time you declare a gospel message. Look at verse 32. And when they, that is the men of Athens, these intelligent men, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some, would you say the next word out loud? They did what? They mocked. Do you know every time I preach the gospel, somebody mocks? In fact, I had a guy in Oregon, Carl, one time. He used to run a Hobart industrial food um, business where you'd sell all this industrial equipment you'd use in a restaurant. And since you know Martha Stewart, you, you can relate to this, can't you, brother? All right. Anyway, um, and this guy came to a service, and he said to his wife after the service, he said, that guy, talking about me, he said, that guy seems to possess reasonable intelligence. That's exactly his statement. I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm glad he picked up on that. You know that I possess reasonable intelligence. He said, uh, no, no, no. He said to his wife, he said, no, my point is this. That guy seems to possess reasonable intelligence, but if he expects me to actually believe that a guy named Jesus came to this earth, God's son, died on a cross for the sins of his own creation. 
If he actually believes, expect me to believe that that guy Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day to forgive the sins of his own creation, those that he actually made but they rebelled against him, if, if he actually expects me to believe all of that story of Jesus dying and rising again to forgive sin, he's nuts. You know what he mocked? He said, in fact, I'm never going back to church again. That guy's crazy. You know what? He continued his mocking for several years until his wife had a little encounter that changed her husband, Jerry's mind. Now, I'm not trying to be spooky tonight, but I want to share something with you, and I want you to hear me out. Jerry's wife was a believer. She attended a great church. She was concerned about her husband who didn't know the Lord. But Jerry said, I'm never going back to church. And so, Carl, here's what Cheryl did. She got on the Internet. She started flirting in an internet chat room with a guy down in California. She got emotionally attached to this guy in California. Now, she's never met him. She's never seen him face to face. She saw a picture he sent her. She didn't even know if that was what he really looked like. She's just flirting with him on the internet. She decides, I'm going to leave my unsaved husband, Jerry. I'm going to move to California. I'm going to marry a man I have never even met before. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind. You talk about insane. That's it. Her husband, Jerry, unsaved man, finds out about this. He calls the pastor of the church that his wife attends, one of my dear pastor friends. And Jerry says to this pastor, would you talk some sense into my wife? She's gone crazy. The pastor said, what are you talking about? Well, she's been flirting on the internet with this guy from California. Could I bring her over to the house? Could you and your wife try to talk some sense into her? And the pastor said, well, sure. So Jerry drives his wife over to the pastor's house, leaves her there for three days. No kidding. Talk some sense into her. Well, they tried that, Brother Pizer. They retire at the end of that long discussion the first night. About 2.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning, the pastor told me, he said, we were awakened by a blood-curdling scream that came from the, the guest room where we had Cheryl staying in our home. The pastor said, my wife was up, threw her house coat on, ran through the house, goes into the room where Cheryl is sleeping. Cheryl is sitting on the edge of the bed, shaking like a leaf. The pastor's wife puts her arm around Cheryl and Cheryl says to the pastor's wife, do you know that guy? You know that guy I've been talking to on the internet in California? And the pastor's wife said, yes, I, I know who you're talking about. She said, well, listen, he was in the room here tonight. He was in your house and in my room. The pastor's wife said, Cheryl, I've just come through the house. The doors are locked. The windows are locked. There's no way that guy was in our house. He doesn't know where we live. He doesn't know that you're here. What are you talking about? She said, no, he was in this room. In fact, he lifted up the covers, slid into the bed beside me, put his arm around me, and when his arm touched me, I felt an icy coldness and I screamed. And Cheryl said, when I screamed, he disappeared like that. The pastor told me my wife was ready to tell Cheryl, oh, you were having a nightmare. She's going to say you were having a nightmare but she realized something else is going on. She said, get dressed, Cheryl. Meet me in the living room, would you? She ran back and she told her husband what I just told you. They meet in the living room. And my dear friend, Pastor Greg Kaminsky, looked at Cheryl like I'm looking at you, Brother Carl. And he said, Cheryl, don't you realize what's going on here? There wasn't anybody in your room tonight as far as a human being. Oh, there was, preacher. I felt his arm. It was icy cold. No, Cheryl. Don't you understand this is weird? You getting attached to a guy on the internet that you've never... Don't you think that's a little odd? And now all of a sudden this guy shows up in your... Don't you think that's... A, look, Cheryl, the point is this. It was not a human being. What I think was in your room tonight was a demon. And Cheryl, you need to confess your sin. Your sin. And that is what it is. Your sin of flirting on the internet. You're a married woman, Cheryl. Your husband doesn't know Jesus. You're being a terrible testimony to him. Confess your sin. And let's see what God will do. He told me later, he said, Cheryl broke at that point. She got on her knees and she began praying like this. Oh God, forgive me for the sin of flirting on the internet. Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done to be a terrible testimony to my husband. Lord, I plead your blood for forgiveness. Now, Brother Pizer, I'm not going to say it any other way than the way my pastor friend told me, and he's not a guy given to exaggeration at all. He said, Dave, when she said, I plead your blood for forgiveness, he said something, we did not see arms, we did not see hands, 
pardon me for doing this, please be my friend after this. <laughs> Something we could not see pushed her shoulders together and pulled, pulled her up off the ground. Something we could not see. And she was propelled across the room about 10 feet. Hit the carpet, rolled over, looked back at the pastor and his wife with a look of abject terror. And the first words out of her mouth were, call my husband Jerry. I must talk to him. Pastor said, it's 3.15 in the morning. Your husband will be asleep. She said, I don't care. Call him. He'll come. They did. She apologized to her husband for being a terrible testimony, told him the whole story. Jerry, there's a demonic element to this. Describe what had just happened to her. You know, two days later, her husband, Jerry, got saved. Why, Brother Dave? Stay with me. He had heard the gospel repeatedly. But you know what he had done? He had mocked Brother Pizer, the supernatural. That night, his wife said, Jerry, I want to tell you, don't you mock the supernatural. I got sucked into something. He got a healthy dose of the supernatural. And you know what? He came to Jesus as his Savior and has been forever changed. Can I have an amen right there? Look, mock if you choose. Some will. There is a second response. Watch your Bible. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Look at the next response. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. While some mock, Brother Larry, some say, you know what, Paul, what you're saying to me, it makes sense, but I need a little more time to think about it. There's always people that mock the gospel. There's always people, number two, that say, I need more time. But the more timers are the ones I'm very much concerned about. Because the fact is, we don't know we're going to get more time, do we? The Bible says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Listen, if you don't know Jesus tonight, don't you say, oh, I know I should come to the Lord tonight, but oh, I need to think about it a little more. You may think about it too long. We will hear you again, Paul, of this matter. Look at the last phrase of verse number 33, or 32 rather. So Paul departed from them. Watch verse 34. Howbeit certain men, and I love this, clave unto him and believed. Among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I want you to watch. Some mock the gospel. Some say I need more time to think about it. Thank God there's a third response. Some make the decision to invite Jesus into their heart. Don't you wish everybody we shared the gospel with? Don't you wish everybody a missionary preached to would make the decision to trust Christ? They, they don't, but some do. Folks, I want to tell you this. If we'll get busy about presenting the gospel to our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, some of them will believe. They will. Oh, preacher, you don't understand. You don't understand my family. No, I don't, but I do understand this, the power of the gospel to change a person's life. With this, I'm done. Pastor, it would have been six years ago, I think, on a Sunday evening, just like last night, we were in Newport Ritchie, Florida. I got a phone call that afternoon from a friend of mine who was a former, former Newport Ritchie, Florida police officer. And he said, Dave, my church is bringing a, a busload of people up to Newport Ritchie to hear you preach tonight on a Sunday night. He said, there'll be about 33, 34 of us in a bus. I said, man, Doug, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Well, they got there just a tad late. I'm glad the service started a little late because right as we were starting, in comes 33 people from Northside Baptist Church down in a southern part of Florida, just south St. Petersburg, just south of where we were in Newport Ritchie. I saw him come in, and so Shelly, I walked down the outside aisle to embrace my friend Doug, and I said, man, Doug, it's so good to see you. How many do you have with you tonight? He said, got 33 people. He said, oh, by the way, Brother Dave, I know you've got to get back up and get ready to preach, but two of the folks that are with us tonight are not actually church members at our church. They're visiting from Boston, Massachusetts. Their names are Bruce and Marjorie Wedlock. Now, at that time, I didn't remember those names, but I know them well now, and I'll tell you why. But he said, pray for Bruce and Marjorie. They're visiting their brother John, who is a member of our church, but they're all the way down from Boston, Massachusetts, and they came to the service tonight. Neither one of them know the Lord. Now, I knew nothing else about Bruce or Marjorie other than that they were lost. That night, to be honest with you, I really didn't preach a salvation message, but I always try to put the gospel in. 
And pastor, when I gave the invitation that night, I always ask people to raise a hand if they're not sure they'd go to heaven when they die. And I noticed six hands went up that night, two of whom was this couple, Bruce and Marjorie, both of them 72, 71 years of age. Well, I extended the invitation a little further and said, now look, if you were serious about that and you don't know that you're going to heaven when you die, but you'd like to know, you'd like to know Jesus, I wonder if you'd just be willing to step out from where you're seated. The pastor's going to be standing right here at the front, which he was. I wonder if you'd step to the front. He'll put someone with you that'll take a Bible and show you from the Bible how you can know Jesus as your Savior. Pastor, four of the six people stepped out. Two of the four were Bruce and Marjorie. When they stepped out and came down the outside aisle, I noticed the entire group from down in, in, in St. Petersburg started weeping and embracing each other. So I knew there was something going on here that I was not privy to. When the service was over, I went to Doug. I said, man, you've got to tell me what in the world is going on. Why all the excitement over Bruce and Marjorie? Doug said, look, he said, I could tell you, but he said, let me get John. Let me get Bruce's brother and let him tell you. Well, John was hugging someone else, tears coming down his cheeks. They got his attention, brought him over to me, and John said, Dave. Dave, he said, you've got to listen to me. He said, this tonight is miraculous. I said, why would you say that? He said, because I've been praying for my brother Bruce for 47 years. 47 years. He said, my brother has been a teacher for 50 years, half a century at MIT. MIT stands for Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It is an engineering school primarily. Highly intelligent people there. My brother has been a professor, teacher at MIT for 50 years. He has been all of his life until tonight an avowed atheist. I've shared the gospel with him. He wanted nothing to do with it. He would listen for a while, but he would never trust Christ. But tonight, not only did my brother Bruce get saved, but so did his wife Marjorie. Can I have an amen right there? Do you know they left at the end of that week and went back to Boston? Pastor, nobody told them you need to find a church that preaches the Bible and become a part of it. Nobody told them that. You know what Bruce did? He's a highly intelligent man. He went on a search. He went on the internet and found a church called Trinity Church that preaches the gospel. And he went to that church and became a part of it. He was baptized a number of months later. Whenever he was baptized, they recorded it on a CD and sent it to me, and I found out more about Bruce Wedlock. In his testimony in front of Trinity Church, he said, I went on a vacation for about six days to visit my brother John in St. Petersburg, Florida. We go with him to church on Sunday morning. He said, I thought, you know, one time on Sunday's enough. We're going to have relax the rest of the afternoon. He said, my brother John said, no, no, we're going to go about 50 miles north of St. Pete to a place called Newport Ritchie, Florida. We're going to listen to a southern evangelist from North Carolina who sweats and spits and all that kind of thing. His name is Dave Kistler. We're going to go listen to him preach. And Bruce said, well, Marjorie and I'll go with you. We just want to spend time with you, John, he said to his brother. So he said in his testimony, we go. He said, that young man, that's what he called me, 52 years of age. I'm glad he thought I was a young man back then. That was six years ago. I was 46 then. That young man got up and he said he preached directly like he was talking to me. He then went on and said this, and Pastor, I'd forgotten I'd used this illustration. He said he concluded, Bruce said, that preacher concluded his message by talking about a dining room table that he and his wife bought. Solid cherry dining room table. And we did. We bought one right after we were married. In fact, it was a $55 table. Probably 28 British pounds for a solid cherry dining room table. If you know anything about wood, a solid cherry dining room table, first quality, should cost way more than that. We bought it for 55 US dollars. He recites that. He said, Dave went on and said, that preacher went on and said, he found out why it was sold for such a cheap price because the, a table top is not one solid piece of wood. It's individual pieces of wood put together, glued together, sanded, stained, and then lacquered. And a tabletop should be totally smooth, which it should be. However, our tabletop, if you got down at it and you looked at it at eye level, you could see all the ridges where the pieces of wood had been put together. It was a factory second, they call them, in North Carolina. Well, I was relating that and how most people, the untrained eye, looking down at that table like this, would not necessarily notice the seams in it that tell us it's a factory second. But if you know what to look for, you'll pick it up immediately. My application that night in the message was God looks at us with a very scrutinizing eye. 
Man may look at us and say, oh, that's a great person. But God looks deeper. Bruce said when that preacher said that, he said it was like an arrow going through my heart. Because I'm a good guy. I pay my bills on time. I've been a teacher here in this community for half a century. I'm a good guy. But he said, I realized that night I'm not a good guy. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he said, that night I went forward and Jesus changed my life and my wife. Pastor, for two years, he tried to get us to his church in Boston. Finally, we go. The pastor was scared to death to do five days worth of meetings, so we did two services. Two. Do you know in those two services, Bruce had a significant portion of his staff that had worked for him at MIT. He had a lot of them in those services. Do you know in just two services, we had 18 precious people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior? Why? Because Bruce is one of those who made a decision to believe on Jesus Christ. When we go to Kenya, folks, some will mock the message. Some will say, you know, it makes sense, but I need a little more time to think about it. Thank the Lord, we're praying hundreds will make the decision and believe and trust Jesus Christ. Why is now important? Why should we get the gospel out now? Because of the complete dependence of man. Because of the command of God. Because of the certainty of judgment. Father, I pray you would help us tonight. On the second night of this missions conference, Lord, please convict our heart. Lord, not a guilt trip. Lord, not twisting of someone's arm, but Lord, Holy Spirit, conviction. I pray it would fall tonight, that it would occur in each of our hearts, and Lord, cause us to rethink what we're doing with the time you've given us on this earth. Lord, every day we have exactly, every one of us have 1,440 minutes, 24 hours. Lord, we have to spend some of that time sleeping. We have to spend some of that time eating. We have to spend a significant portion of that time working. But Lord, surely, in the course of a week, surely we can carve out on purpose some time to be a witness for you. In fact, Lord, I pray it would be naturally done. In the course of our life, as we interact with people, Lord, may we, we be conscious that I'm talking to a man or woman that probably doesn't know you. And Father, may we be willing to speak up, to say something, to pray and ask you to create opportunities for us to share the gospel. Father, may we also realize you've given us a multitude of resources, monetarily, materially. And Father, surely at the end of this conference, you could have so worked in our heart that we'd be willing to pick up one of those cards on the back table and say, Lord, I've got to do more. Lord, I may not know now where it's going to come from, but you've worked on my heart. And by faith, I want to commit to you. I'm going to do my best to give this amount. And then, Lord, trust you to provide it and bring it in by faith. Father, what I'm asking is that you would challenge us tonight. And Lord, calls us to be willing to ratchet up, as it were, our efforts with the gospel. Because of the complete dependence of man upon you, we don't know when people are going to die. You hold their breath in your hand. You command all men everywhere to repent. Now, your patience is drawing to an end. And Lord, because of the certainty of judgment that's to come, Lord, if we have friends, neighbors that die without you, they will face your judgment. So Father, may we ratchet up our efforts in the power of your Spirit. And Father, for what you do, I'll give you all the glory. Now friends, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. What I'm about to do, I don't take lightly and I don't believe you will either. But I do want to lay a proposition before you tonight. Please listen carefully. 24 hours every day, 1,440 minutes encapsulated into that 24 hours. 24 hours times seven. You can do the math. That's the amount of time we have every week of our life. Now, I don't know what you have been doing, not been doing. That's not really my concern at this point. But I do want to challenge you with something, a consideration. 
I wonder how many of you tonight that know Jesus as your Savior would be willing to say, not to me, not to Pastor Larry, but to your Lord. You would be willing to say, Lord, I see why now is so important. I've got to start ratcheting up my efforts sharing the gospel. I've got to do it now. I really need to. And Lord, because I do understand it, I'm willing to tell you tonight, Lord, I'm willing to tell you tonight, Lord, you being my helper, I'm going to do my best. You being my helper, Lord, I'm going to do my best to speak to at least one person every seven days. You being my helper, Lord, I'm going to do my best to speak to at least one person every seven days and with my lips tell them how they can know you. You know, folks, we could all do that. Well, Dave, I'm not a gifted speaker. The Lord doesn't need gifted speakers. He needs obedient people. Well, I'm not talented. The Lord's not looking for talent. He's looking for yieldedness. Lord, you being my helper, I'll do my best to tell one person every seven days how they can know you. Lord, I'll at least initiate the conversation. I will pray that you will create opportunities where it's an easy conversation to have. But Lord, I'm telling you, you being my helper, I'm going to do my best to tell one person at least, one person at least every seven days how they can know you as Savior. I wonder how many of you would be willing to pray that to the Lord and mean it. If you would be willing to do that, I'm going to ask you tonight to be willing to do this. Again, I don't know what you normally do here, but if you'd be willing to say, Lord, I get this, I get it. I understand it. It's important to start sharing the gospel now. So Lord, I'm going to do my best every seven days. You being my helper, I'm going to do my best to speak to one person at least and tell them how they can know you as Savior. At least I'll, I'll start the conversation. One person every seven days. If you'd be willing to tell your Lord you're going to endeavor to do that, I wonder if you'd be willing to get up from where you're currently seated and either down around this altar on either side of the pulpit here or maybe sitting at one of these chairs here that are vacant all across the front or maybe kneeling by one of them. I wonder if you'd be willing to just come here and pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to do my best. You being my helper to tell one person at least every seven days how they can know you as Savior. If you'd be willing to commit to that, the Lord being your helper, tell one person every seven days. I wonder if you'd be willing to get up and come and meet me down here at the front and just kneel here and tell that to the Lord. Would you be willing to do that? If you would, I invite you to come right now. Would you do that? God bless you, sir and ma'am. God bless you, sir. Thank God for you. Remember the wording, I'm going to do my best. My best. I'm going to do my best, Lord. It's not a guilt trip. It's not my intent. If you think that's what it is, you're, you're misunderstanding. But folk, we've got to start being conscious that all around us are not just people. They're lost people. They're lost. And if they don't come to Christ, they'll be eternally lost. And we need to tell them now. Why, Dave? Because they're completely dependent upon God for the next breath. Because God commands them to repent, His patience is drawing to a close. And because of the certainty of their judgment one day, Lord, I'm going to do my best every seven days to tell one person. Maybe you already do that. If you do thank God for you, you know what? It wouldn't hurt you to join us here around this altar tonight. If you haven't been doing that, I wonder if you'd be willing to join us and say, Lord, I'm going to do my best every seven days. Tell one person how they can know you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, the power of it, the simplicity of it. I thank you, Lord, that you have declared us to be your ambassadors. We represent you, our King, on foreign soil, which is what this world is. Lord, this world is really not our home. We're pilgrims and strangers passing through this place. We're only here temporarily. We're here to accomplish a mission, and our mission is centered 
around the gospel message. So, Father, I pray you would help us to be far more sensitive to the world around us than we've ever been. Lord, I pray you would help us to take advantage through the leadership of your precious Holy Spirit. May we take advantage of the days in which we live. Because, Lord, these are surely days that afford us opportunity, perhaps unlike anything in my lifetime, an occasion, an opportunity almost tailor-made to present the gospel. So, Lord, may we take advantage of that, I pray. Use these, my dear friends, who have knelt here, Lord, are kneeling here now. Lord, use me to be witnesses for you like we've never been. And, Father, I pray that in a few weeks, Brother Larry will call for folks to turn in those cards and commit to a monetary investment. Father, I pray that you would have so worked and so led that we would not have missed your will, that we would respond exactly doing what you want us to do. And Father, for all of this, we'll give you glory and praise and thanksgiving. Above all things, Lord, help us to be keenly aware of everyone around us, their lost condition, and help us to speak up, I pray. And for all this, we'll thank you and give you great praise because, Jesus, you alone are worthy. For it's in your name I do ask all these things. Amen. Amen.